0: Us. and he had a thing called the hustle stick, which is a stick about yay long, and he drove a nail through, one in perpendicular. Now, I think he always turned it so the, the nail wasn't actually what he applied to our backsides, but you didn't know that running along, and that image of a hustle stick is a little bit what I'm talking about today. I'm, I'm, I might be serving the purpose of a hustle stick. Um, we'll come back to that. Let me start with this. I don't know if you you recognize either of those images. They're movie clips. And if you have the Grace Point app, I'll make a little ad for the the app. If you don't have that on your phone, I would really encourage you to download that for your tablet, phone, whatever. uh, Because those videos are on the the app right now. We're a little pressed for time today. I'm just going to tell you about the clip very quickly. But you can watch both those clips on the app. And if you're in a small group, that would be a great thing to do and then kind of study things. If you want to download the app now, would be a good time to do that. I'll wait. Thank you. Um, Let me. The the two clips are kind of interesting. Um, One is from a 1989 movie called Dead Poets Society. Robin Williams is a teacher at a private boys' school, and then the other one is from a TV show called The West Wing, which was about a fictional president and a fictional presidential administration. They both have a very similar illustration, which I want to start with and end with today, and that's this. Um, The the Robin Williams one, the the teacher at a boys' school, first day of class, this young, passionate teacher teaches these young men a phrase in Latin called carpe diem, which is uh, from the poet Horace, uh, a Roman poet. And carpe diem in Latin means seize the day, which is maybe a a more educated way of saying YOLO. but the idea is, don't wait around, be extraordinary. And He's encouraging these young men to not wait, but to get everything out of life, and to go make your life extraordinary, and do it now. Seize the day. The other one, the West Wing, was a, a if you're really into politics, it was sort of like a very interesting show. Uh, it's the last year of a president's administration, and the 365 is the chief of staff comes in and puts that number on the board because they have exactly one year left in their administration, and he's gathered the staff together, these young, passionate, completely fictional conservative Democrats, and says, what do you want to do? You have one year left. You will have no more chance to do good for your community, for your country, than you have when you're working at the White House. What are you going to do with these final days? And it's a really encouraging kind of thing. And they both go together very well, I think, with uh, the book of Galatians, specifically the, the end of the book of Galatians, kind of illustrations to seize the day, to get involved now, and to think about what are you going to do with the time that you have left? Because, my friends, our physical life, as we've been reminded many times in the last few days, our physical life will end. This is short, what we're doing right now. This matter around us will fade away, and we have an eternity to spend with Jesus in a glorified state. This will seem very short someday. So what are we doing with our time? This short, short period of time we have. And Mike reminded us last week that our actions have consequences, That We are going to be evaluated and so putting those things together and Paul in the book of Galatians the end does this excellent job of both being encouraging and a little convicting and if I've done my job well and by the spirit I pray that that will happen you will both be slightly convicted and slightly encouraged today depending on kind of where you're at in life but the theme for the day is that seize the day get involved get in the game And I might serve the purpose of a slight hustle stick for you. So the central question, if you're taking notes, um, the central question today is how do we live? How do we live our lives? Since we are justified by faith, since we are saved by faith, how do we live in this state, this, this, how do we go about this? And Paul's answering that question. The answer is, because I don't like to have spoilers for anybody, but... If you're taking notes, the answer to that is how we're supposed to live is we are to be active. We are to be active in doing good for everyone, but especially for people in the church. That's what we're going to talk about today. We should answer that question through what Galatians has to say for us. So very quickly, part one on your notes is kind of taking a look at the churches of Galatia, setting the overall context, a little reminder about uh, the book of Galatians. And what you have to remember is that the Galatian churches, first of all, were Christian churches. These These were people that have been saved. They are justified. But what they were doing, and they were doing, but what they were doing was not good. They were adding requirements to the gospel. They said to be justified, you had to follow certain rules. To be sanctified, you must observe the law. And we've talked a lot about the law, and about the Jewish customs, and they would judge one another based on rules, based on behavior. And they made it not something that you're encouraged to do, but something that you must do. In fact, you must do it to be saved, they believe. And so Paul is pretty upset about this and spends a lot of time in the book of Galatians directing it at the Galatian churches, comparing living by faith versus living by the law, living by the Spirit versus living by our flesh, which is really saying, is it God? Or is it you? Is it God or is it you that will save you? Is it God or is it you that makes your work worthwhile? And Paul hammers this pretty hard. And it's a lot of contrast. And it always comes back to these tenses of salvation. I know this is fundamental. We've done this many times. But we're going to do it again. Because I think it's one of those things you can't do it enough. Salvation is really three parts. Past, present, and future. The past, which is always on this side of the church, I was justified, say it with me, justified by faith, okay? I was saved, was saved, past, happened. I was saved from the penalty of sin. And then we live in the present tense where I am being sanctified by, I'm a, I, I have freedom over the power of sin. I'm saved from that. I'm being sanctified. It's an ongoing process right now. And we all look forward to the future where we will be glorified, where we'll be saved from the very presence of sin. Now, Galatians deals a lot with justification because the the Galatian churches were doing some bad things there, but mostly we're in this present tense. And for this passage specifically, present tense, we're talking about sanctification. So, and I'll say this several times, but I don't, I don't ever want you to be confused by that. When we talk about things we should or should not be doing for sanctification, it's talking to people who are already believers. Okay? You've placed your faith in Jesus Christ. You were justified. And now what? So we're not talking about requirements or anything that has to do with whether or not you will be in heaven forever or you will be in the lake of fire forever. We'll talk about that later. It's about this present tense being sanctified by faith. The central question is this idea, since we're saved by faith, how do we live? Since we're saved, how do we live then? The context going into this, or what we're going to talk about today, is Galatians, the passage, is chapter 6, verses 6 through 10, picking up on where Gary left off and actually where Mike uh, took us on a little journey as well. Let me read this. This is from the New American, is that uh, the version I'm using. Galatians 6, uh, verses 6 through 10. The one who is taught the word is to share all good things with the one who teaches him. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will to the Spirit reap eternal life. Let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time... We will reap if we do not grow weary. So then, while we have the opportunity, let us do good to all people, and especially to those who are in the household of faith. Holy Fathers, we come to you as your people, your people that you called out, your people that you saved. We recognize that you are so good, you are so great, and you are the perfect love. Father, we give thanks to you that we have this place to meet in that we have your word and languages that we can understand. And, Father, we give thanks to all those men and women that went before us, establishing this church by you, serving by your spirit, and leading, Father, people that have led us. Father, forgive us for our sin, for when we act poorly, or when we do not act. And, Father, by your spirit, teach us your word this morning. By your spirit, implant your truth into our hearts Make us more like your son this morning. We ask this all in Jesus' perfect name. Amen. So, part two in your notes, a little context. The context of verses 6 through 10 is really verses 1 through 5. Go figure. Uh, thematically, if you kind of read that all as one idea, it is one idea. Verses 1 through 5, is, well, it's 1 through 10, is one complete thought from uh, Paul to the Galatian church. And remember, Paul's talking to the Galatian church, and we're kind of behind Paul's shoulders. We can hear Paul, but we don't hear the Galatians. We we know some we can infer, we can look at the historical record, and we know some of what Paul has said the Galatian churches were doing, but really it's a communication directly from Paul to the Galatians. And so part of the question is, does it apply to us? Okay, we're not Galatians, we're not living in fifty AD. We're here in the, the modern world with all of its goods and bads. Does it apply? Well Yes. Let me show you a little bit why that is doing. First off, the Galatian churches, we knew they were doing things that weren't great. They were doing things that were adding to justification. Legal requirements for sanctification. They were That was big on the Galatian churches. Uh, also recognize that the church is a singular thing. It's a plural, and that's made up of lots of people, but we're one thing. God built the church. This isn't a country club. We're not a the the Rotary Club. We're not our own little rules. We're following God, and God established us in unity. And one of our duties is to maintain the unity that's already existing. We're in a community of faith, and 1 through 5 really talks about some of these not requirements, but responsibilities we have to one another in the church, that we are to be mutually engaged with one another. Loving, interactive relationships. The local church is a big deal to God. And when people leave the local church, it's a big deal to God, and it hurts the local church. And so Paul is really aiming this at the local church, and so we're a local church, the Galatians are a local church, kind of goes together. That's a pretty good sign for it. The other thing is what the Galatian church was doing. The Galatian church was struggling with legalism, judging people based on their behaviors. We do that, don't we? We might not mean to, but we all do that a little bit. We all judge a little bit, and it depends on what your your personal things are. In the old days in this church, you know, drinking, dancing, gambling, all bad, and people were judged for that. Mine might be people who leave the church. Yours might be something about, I don't know, how they park, or people that leave the stupid carts out at Safeway parking lot. Good things, right? But they're not to be part of how we view one another in the spiritual realm. And they certainly better not have anything to do with you have to put your card away if you're gonna be a justified believer in Christ, or about how we live our life being sanctified. We have enormous freedom in Christ, and we, we tend to, to try to judge people and kinda of sort people out a little bit, and it's funny. We always do it by what we are not, right? We don't do it by, well, I judge that person because he's doing the same thing I'm doing. No, we look at the differences. All right, the Galatian church was doing that. So when you look at, yes, we're a local church, and yes, we struggle with some of the same issues the Galatian church was. I trust that none of us are adding Jewish law, and that you don't hear that discussed here. We're maybe a little bit farther apart from the Galatians, but we're still struggling, and we're still judging. So I think this does apply to us very clearly. I'm going to split verses 6 through 10 into three parts. Um, part 3 on your notes will be the first verse. Then the meat of the passage, um, and then the final bit there at the end, which is kind of an application bit. So, starting with verse six, excuse me. uh, What do we do, and why do we do it? And this is, you might think of verse six as kind of the the controlling verse for this passage. How how are we supposed to interact? He gives a specific, but the language he uses is more of a a general principle. So, he's going to give you an example, but you kind of want to apply it a little bit broadly. Happily. For this entire passage, the grammar, the language, everything's very literal. It's all very clear. There's not, uh, sometimes you dig into a word and you discover great things. Mostly you dig into the words here and they're pretty much translated into English very well, which is good for me because not being a Greek guy, this is nice to be able to just go, hey, it means what it says very clearly. So first one is, we're to share with one another. To share good things with one another. Share good, if you're the teachy, you're the student, share back with the teacher the good things. But again, the general principle is share good things with one another. Communicate, interact, talk. All of us, you with me, me with you, one another's, with Gary, with everyone, that we're to be interactive, sharing good things, positive things. Why? Well, I can think of five reasons off the top of my head. The first one, We're called to do that. Now, some of us, not really me per se, but there's some people, they read it in the Bible, says that's what you're supposed to do, and they, no problem. They will follow that along and go right there with you. Some people, more like me, I need a little context sometimes to have to think about it a little bit, and it's it's not, and it should be enough that God tells us to, but um, it's how we bear one another's burdens. That shows up in verse 1. Of this chapter, to bear one another's burdens. How do you do that unless you're interactive with one another? If you're a Stevens minister, which is all about bearing burdens, how do you find out that somebody needs a burden unless somebody shares a little bit? We have to interact a little bit. We have to know a little bit about one another. We're not a country club. We're supposed to be better than that. We're supposed to be more interactive in a closer relationship, kind of like a family. We're supposed to encourage one another. That means you have to do it Physically, you have to verbalize something. There has to be an overt action to share with one another. That's how we endure suffering, and it's how God is glorified. God is glorified by how we treat one another, and we can't do anything for one another unless we're sharing, unless we're interactive. Here's a quick gut check for you, and this caught me off guard. You don't want to blow past good things. Share all good things. Think in your own life. Just over the last week. Conversations you've had. Things you've written. Stuff you put on Facebook. How much was good? How much was negative? When I'm sitting having coffee with some guys. And we're talking. How much of what I share is me being grouchy about politics? How much of What I say if I'm on Facebook are what I'm against, things I don't like. Sharing what you don't like is not all good things. We're to share all good things with one another. That's a way to celebrate with one another. Unfortunately, we all live in a culture that doesn't celebrate all good things. Our culture celebrates outrage. Our culture... Honors fear and anger, and we hit like on Facebook for somebody who makes a great point against some political cause, against something, what's wrong with the world. You go into a coffee shop and you can hear different groups. You can have a group of people that it's there's like a black cloud over them. And everything stinks and it's not as good as it used to be, and blah 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 blah. We're Christians, friends. We are called to be people who love. We are called to be truth speakers. So before you want to vent with somebody, do a little gut check. Are you sharing all good things? Are you buying into the culture of being outraged? Before you hit share on Facebook, do you know what you're sharing is true? Because Christians, we're supposed to be truth tellers, and truth, we're we're responsible for these things. How can I share the gospel with somebody if I'm known as somebody who shares all the crazy things about the conspiracy theories about the current president or the last president? Share all good things with one another. Next section Actions and consequences. Number four on your notes if you're paying uh, and playing with the, the program there. Um, This is kind of the heart of the message. I think this is the most important part. Uh, It deals with a couple interesting things that um, I wasn't really taught a lot when I was growing up in Yakima and as a little Presbyterian, smart-aleck kid that if I was taught it, I certainly didn't pay attention to it. And that's going to deal with um, the doctrine of judgments. And I want to take just a second to hit a little bit of doctrine here for you. There are two judgments that everyone, well, everyone will go through one judgment, and Christians will go through a second judgment. Okay? One you're probably familiar with, and that would be, whether you know it's called this or not, or you've looked up the verses or not, and that's the great white throne of judgment. And you can find that in Revelations and in John 3. But there will be a judgment, and this kind of deals with justification. Everyone that has ever lived will be judged by the great white throne of judgment. And the question is, do you believe in Jesus Christ or not. Those that do will move on. Those that don't will be thrown in the lake of fire. Non-believers are judged from believers. It's not maybe the most positive thing that we always talk about in church, but it's real. And the Bible's very clear on this, and that's why there's some uh, people have the burden for evangelism. This is usually one of their motivating factors is they don't want to see people go into the lake of fire for eternity. If you're a believer... You are going to pass this judgment successfully, completely, 100%. If you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you're going to be fine. You will not be thrown into the lake. Don't believe me? John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Or as our friend Gary likes to tell us, you read that with your name. So God so loved Wes. That when he gave his only son to Wes, that Wes believes in him, Wes will not be, or Wes will not perish, but will give an eternal life. It's a personal thing. That's the great white throne of judgment. If you have placed your trust in Jesus Christ, is probably the most clear part of the Bible. You are going to heaven, there are no rules, there are no conditions, there are no requirements. If you believe, you are saved. Everybody with me? That's a bigger deal than anything else we're going to talk about today. If you're not convinced that you're going to heaven, if you have not placed your trust in Jesus, that's what I'd like you to think about right now. And I'd like you to talk to me afterwards about it, because that's a bigger deal than any other doctrine stuff we're going to go through today. Now, if you have believed, if you're a believer, you're going to have a second judgment. It's called the Bema Seat of Judgment, which is a, a court term from that period of Israel. Not whether or not you're a believer. Not whether or not you're going to heaven. You're going to heaven. You got through the great white throne, you're fine. You're going to heaven. But there will be a judgment for your actions. And whether or not you'll be rewarded for your actions or not. And this is what Mike was talking about last week. That we are responsible for our actions. And they are judged. They're evaluated. 1 Corinthians three, thirteen through 14 Each man's work will become evident for the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. Other verses talk about our actions that are worthless are thrown into the fire like wheat chaff. Just stuff to burn up. Doesn't matter. Doesn't do anything. Our actions are judged. And so as a believer... We're evaluated. Are actions worthwhile? The worthwhile actions, we're going to receive a reward for. The actions that aren't worthwhile, they're just gone. They were nothing. I like to think of time I spent on Netflix, probably not worth very much. Those actions probably aren't going to be eternally uh, important. Actions I spend with other people are probably the important things. So the Galatians were about doing actions in the flesh, about doing things that got them rewards now. They wanted to be rewarded for being a good Christian. And so they would do things that allowed other people to see them. They would pray on the street corner. They would observe festivals and make a big deal about it. They would be very showy all about themselves. False piety. Look at me. I'm a righteous man. I have been circumcised. I am praying out loud. I am giving this much. I am observing every lunar festival there is. We do this. We do that. Me, 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 me. What he's talking about, what that is talking about, is mocking God in verse 7. Don't be deceived. God will not be mocked. If you are depending on your behavior for righteousness, you are mocking God. You're saying what God did doesn't matter. What Jesus did on the cross, that doesn't matter it's all about what you do. And our flesh, our sin nature likes that. Who doesn't want to be rewarded now for things? Right? I mean, ask a kid, would you like one marshmallow now or ten marshmallows in an hour? What are they going to say? Give me, give me, give me. We're like that. It's a human nature thing, it's our sin nature thing. And I think that's why the Galatians were attracted to this. They wanted their rewards now. They weren't worried about rewards in heaven, they wanted their rewards now. So let's do things that get us honored now. Uh, very famous old school Baptist preacher, a guy named R.G. Lee. He gave sermons all over the United States. One of his most famous sermons, he preached it, I think, in every state, Payday Someday. That was the name of the sermon. And really, I think you get everything you need out of that, right? As Christians, we're playing the long game. We don't need our awards right now. We're hoping to store up rewards in heaven. Uh, Famous pastor Henry Ironsides, which might be the greatest name of any pastor in the world, Pastor Ironsides, Yeah, I'm not going to contradict that guy. He always says, it never pays to be forgetful of the future. Condition and consequence. That's one of Gary's favorite phrases. What are the condition? What's the consequence? The condition of living by the flesh, sowing things by the flesh, is corruption. Is nothing. It's, It's worthless. The condition of sowing things by the spirit is rewards. You'll be rewarded in heaven. You'll be rewarded by God. Would you rather be rewarded by God or would you rather be rewarded by a couple people on the street corner right now? Okay, logically, I think we all go for God's God. But our sin nature doesn't want that. And the Galatians didn't. The Galatians got sucked into that. It's an agricultural metaphor, sowing. You reap what you sow. Talking about your actions. When Russ sows onion seeds, he expects onions to come up right not orange trees our actions are the seeds what we do or what we don't do what we fail to do we're held responsible for we're sowing whether we mean to or not right now we're sowing in our thoughts in our actions and so when you leave here when you're the church out in the rest of the community for the rest of the week it's important that you think about that and think about doing good not because you have to because you want rewards, because you're motivated by things. And that's why, moving in your notes, motivation is the key to this. What's your motivation? I can do good. I can be standing here preach a sermon for you. And I can be doing it because I like you looking at me, and I like you listening to me, and I like walking out here and people pat me on the back saying, hey, good job. Well, that makes me feel good. And if that's my motivation to get patted on the back, shame on me. If my motivation is I have abilities and I can share with you and I can encourage somebody to not make a mistake I've probably made in the past, that's a better motivation. If my motivation is to follow the example of Jesus, that's even better motivation. But we're going to run into our consequences. Sooner or later in life, we all sit down to a banquet of our consequences. Robert Louis Stevenson, author of Treasure Island and such. Paul, the Apostle Paul, is telling the Galatian church, God is watching. God will not be mocked by you. When you try to create your own rules for what it means to be saved, that's going to come back and bite you. You will be held responsible. You will miss some rewards because what you're doing is worthless. They're sowing seeds that aren't going to grow. The Galatian church. We don't want to be like that. So, the last section... It's kind of the summary section for this, and it's also kind of a, kind of the application, almost, of verses 1 through 9, or 1 through 8. Goals for life. I don't know why it's stuck with me, probably because uh, my coach with the hustle stick beat this into us also in football. My goal in life is to get to heaven, and somebody says, well done, thou good and faithful servant. I like that goal. I like that parable. In fact, if you want to have a good small group study, talk about the sermon, read the Galatians, and then go back and read Matthew 25 and the parable of the talents with the the master giving his three servants talents and one loses it, one hides it and does nothing, but the other multiplies it. The one that multiplied it is the good servant. We've been given talents, spiritual gifts. We want to multiply that. We don't want to give up. Paul makes a statement of don't lose heart in doing good. Because you will in due time, meaning in heaven, you will receive a reward. You will reap a reward of good deeds if you don't grow weary. And he reminds us, while we have time, while we have opportunity, let's do good for everybody. And especially to those in the church. Now especially makes it sound like a priority. It's not. He's calling attention that it should be natural for you. Like if you're in a Christian, and you're in a church. Of course, you, your church should reflect that. And that's the idea that what the outside world sees is how we relate to one another and our love that we show or fail to show is noticed by the outside world. So Paul's reminding, hey, you're in this thing together. Don't lose heart. Don't get too tired. And it comes back to verse one of chapter six on bear each other's burdens. Okay, if somebody's starting to lose heart, somebody in the church should be encouraging that person. If somebody's burdens are above normal and they're getting wore down, it's the responsibility of people in the church, go pick up that burden quickly. Because in due time, we will receive the reward for that. And you don't want to miss out on rewards in heaven. So this last bit, you could put this in more local terms, suck it up buttercup. It's a hustle stick, all right? Paul's putting a little hustle stick to the backside of the Galatian church about hey, don't grow weary, and if you do grow weary, there's somebody in the church to kind of back you up a little bit. We're to bear each other's burdens, and you can't take a look, you can't ignore verse one with verse nine. They have to they go together. Things we can do for and I'll come back in the application phase the things we can do to bear one another's burdens. But remember the. This, oops, not that, never mind. We don't have all the time in the world to do good. While we have opportunity, this life. I could have a heart attack right now. You could have a stroke right now. We could be driving home today and it's rapture day. Our life is short. Our physical life is short. We have opportunity to do good right now. And if we're wasting it, And not doing things, that's not a good thing. We're going to miss out on some stuff. I don't know if you've ever thought about this before. When we're justified, when we accept Christ, why aren't we raptured right then? I mean, think about it. Doesn't it kind of logically make sense when you accept Christ? Why doesn't Christ beam you up immediately to heaven? He doesn't do that. That's part of the end times. So clearly, there's a reason why we're still here. What are those reasons? Well, one of them is so we can do good for one another. God is glorified by us doing good for one another. That's how he shows his magnificence. In our failings, in our sinful, screwed up, small minded, temporal selves, we can do amazing things by his spirit for one another. It's for one another. That's how God is glorified. That's part of the answer why we're not raptured out immediately. I'm very cognizant of my own mortality because I went through a time where I didn't think I was going to be around here for very long. So when you think about that, it does put a little urgency on your work. I mean, especially think about it at my work at the city about I've got a lot to do and I can't be sitting around putting my feet up on the desk hanging out because I've got a lot of work to do. And as a churchgoer, I kind of want to have that same urgency and I don't always but I kind of want to have that same sense of I need to really be doing good right now for people because I don't know how long I'm going to be here to keep doing good. My legs work, my arms work, I can do some stuff. Billy Graham. Heard of Billy Graham? If you're old enough, I'm sure you've heard of Billy Graham. He's a little bit before my time, but I can remember him being on TV. Billy Graham, kind of the greatest 20th century evangelist. Amazing preacher, friend of president's, uh, prayed with, I think, every president when he was in ministry. Uh, son has carried on to a lesser, greater degree some of that. 1961, uh, Billy Graham was at a, a meeting where President Kennedy was there, and after the meeting, President Kennedy went up in 1961 and talked to Billy Graham and said, "Billy, I got some questions for you." He was asking about the second coming of Christ. He goes, "Is that true? Do you believe that, Billy?" And Billy said, "Yeah, that's, that you know went." Actually, got their Bible out, and Billy Graham took them through some of the verses about the doctrine of the second coming. And President Kennedy had never been taught that before. And he, President Kennedy even asked, He goes, well, I'd I have never heard that. Does my church believe that? And Billy Graham assured him, Yes, your, your church does believe, and that 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 doctrine's consistent. And uh, JFK was kind of concerned and said, I want to talk about this some more. And they had to go. It was years later, there, the national prayer breakfast in February of 1963, and that's actually a picture from the prayer breakfast, held at a church just north of the White House. Billy Graham was the speaker, of course. Billy Graham had a cold and was feeling awful, but he, you know, you're at the national prayer breakfast with the president and his cabinet, you're going to make that call, right? So afterwards, Billy Graham they, and the president walk out together, and they're standing on the sidewalk of the church, and JFK asks if Billy would ride back to the White House with him wants to talk. I'm going to quote from Billy Graham here. Billy Graham says, Mr. President, I've got a fever, I protested. Not only am I weak, but I don't want to give you this thing. Couldn't we wait and talk about it some other time? It was a cold, snowy day, and I was freezing as I stood there without my overcoat. Of course, JFK said graciously. That breakfast was in February of 1963. Nine months later, Kennedy would be killed in Dallas, Texas. Quoting from Billy Graham again. His hesitation at the car door and his request haunt me still. What was on his mind? Should I have gone with him? It was an irrecoverable moment. That is a sad, and for me, deeply convicting story. Now, it's also in some ways strangely encouraging to me that Billy Graham was doing the same sort of things I might do, right? You know, I mean, that's, that's a very human thing to do. And we don't know. But in that instance, neither Billy Graham nor JFK knew how many days they had left. That was very convicting to Billy Graham. To do good to all, including people in the church, because we don't know how many days we have, to seize the day. And so when we think about these two video clips, I hope you get a chance to watch, or better yet, go rent Dead Poet Society and go get a copy, or I'm sure you can download it on something, of the episode 365 from the West Wing. The great illustrations, challenging us not to wait around to do things, because we don't know how long we have, and there's some excitement about doing things while we have time to do it, to do good for everyone, especially for people in the church. So you come to the answer, how are we to act? How are we to live? Well, we're to be active in doing good. Now these are takeaways, application, if you will. And takeaways are opinions. This isn't from Scripture. This isn't something you can count on. It's, it's free with the price of admission this morning. I give it to you to stimulate conversation not to say that I'm completely right. Although I believe I am, but I'm, I believe I am for me. All right, I wouldn't apply what I think is right to you. So first off, three things. How can you be active in doing good? First of all, do something. Seriously. You ever, I don't know if you've ever had a chance. or You don't know what to do. I've been an elder here since, I don't know, I think 2000. There are times in my career as an elder where I felt like I was in neutral. I felt like I wasn't doing anything. I was like a car and the engine's revving, but I'm not seeing anything happen. I don't know what to do. Uh, I feel like what I'm doing is not effective. And you have those self-doubts. And part of that's probably just human failings. And so what you do, what I try to do, is I try to learn from writers. Writers talk about have, you know, people that have to write for a living. They get writer's block. They, they can't write their novel. They can't write their screenplay, whatever they're doing. So you know what a lot of writers do to break that? They just start copying Shakespeare, a novel. They just start writing. They copy somebody else's words to get kind of moving in doing what they need to do. If a writer gets writer's block, they just start to write. They're not writing what they're supposed to write, but the the physical process of doing something kind of stimulates us to get going. So in the church, when I don't know what to do, and I'm not sure what I'm supposed to do, I do something. Yeah, it might not be my gift, and it might not be ultimately the perfect thing for me doing, but if I'm doing something for the church, it's getting me going. And once I get going, I'll figure it out. It, it, it always works its way out. and You get out of your writer's block. I like to use baseball metaphors when you can't hit the ball. Same idea. You just get over the slump and you get going. So do something good. Get in the game. Get involved. That's the first thing you can do, to apply what Paul's talking about here when he's warning the Galatian church and giving them the hustle stick. Secondly, things you can do to do good. More specific, bear somebody's burdens. Burnout is a big problem in small churches. You've probably heard of the 80-20 rule. 20% of the people do 80% of the work. I don't know what that, I don't think that's true here, but um, there's no question that there are people that do a lot of work here that people aren't aware of. Right now, if you have kids, you're probably aware there's a nursery program. Uh, You're probably aware there's junior church, but those people could use a rest sometime. So do you know what you're doing? Maybe not, but you can go into the nursery and help them out. That might be bearing a burden. Just interacting and asking somebody how they're doing and actually listening to the answer or not letting them off the hook with, oh, I'm fine. Well, you you don't look like you're fine. You're trying to bear somebody's burden. You can give somebody else a rest for a little while. It's a simple thing that you can do to help somebody out. Do your fingers work? Well, you can probably run a computer. Do your ears work? You can probably listen to kids in Awana and and listen to their Bible verses. Can you smile? You can be an usher. doesn't matter what it is. Get in the game. Do something. Do something good. Bear somebody's burden. Give somebody else a rest. And finally, be an encourager. This comes back to sharing all good things. The Apostle Paul in Philippians talks about all these great things and says, Dwell on these things. As an individual, when we dwell on good things, it's good for us. It will lift your spirits. If you dwell on how screwed up the world is and how President Trump is this and President Obama was that, you will get yourself in a negative spiral. Dwell on good things. You're encouraging yourself by doing that. And guess what? You'll probably be more encouraging to others and look for chances to encourage others. Again, we're not the Rotary Club. Rotary Club is awesome, but it's different than what we are. We're a community of faith that God put together. God built us to be in this thing together, and we've got to do things for one another. And if you're serving, awesome. Keep serving by the Spirit. If you're here and you're not too involved with other people, there could be a problem there in your life. You might be missing out on some great rewards. Now, I don't mean just serve the church, because there are people in here that are serving their families and serving their neighbors and serving people in their work that have nothing to do with our church but is still God-inspired, God-given work because they're working with other people. They're serving other people. They're encouraging other people. And I think that's the message that Paul's telling us is to be active in helping one another, encouraging one another, sharing and interacting with another, and doing good things and not losing heart. Seizing the day so that 's the message out of or er, <laughs> out of Galatians, and probably Philippians a little bit too. If the men would come forward as we will observe our monthly ordinance of communion, for those of you that have been with us for a long time, you know that this is um, our church believes this is a memorial service, this is a memorial time for us to remember what Christ has done for us and it's laid out in Scripture, and there's nothing magic about this. Um, we believe that these are elements, these are tools to help us remember. There's no grace inspired, there's nothing given by eating or drinking, it's simply something to help us remember. It's for believers. Um, if you're not a believer, we'd ask that you, you just observe, consider what's happening here. If you've got kids, that's up to the parents to decide if the, your, your child knows what's going on here or not. Again, It's something to help us remember what Christ has done for us. Um, That's our view, and that's our time of how we reflect on this. And uh, it's something we do together. And I I like to always remind us that communion is done by believers worldwide in all sorts of different ways, but it all comes back to reflect on what Jesus has done for us. Reflective worship, if you will. Uh, It's been performed on the moon, and it's performed under the deepest seas and submarines, on deserts and on mountaintops. It's something that Christians do worldwide, throughout time, which is a neat thing to recognize how connected we are. Um, when we do this, we give thanks to the bread, and we give thanks for the cup, and we follow the example that Jesus did during the Last Supper with his um, his friends, his closest friends on the earth. Uh, it comes out of 1 Corinthians 11. The Lord Jesus, in which the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So I'll ask Bill Carell if he would uh, step up this morning and give thanks for the bread.